0: Well, we're we're in a series in Ephesians um, called Meant for More. And we've been journeying the book of Ephesians verse by verse uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, as you know, journeying a book of the Bible together as a community helps us focus on one vision. Together as a community, we're heading towards one vision. And it also Uh, achieves the end of like hearing less of what I think about things and more of like what God has to say about things and that's always a good thing. So we've been journeying Ephesians together and we're in Ephesians 5. If you wanted to turn or swipe there with me and we're going to be in verses 15 through 20. Wisdom's a funny thing. It's a tricky thing to speak publicly about as many of you might realize, at no other point um, in teaching here or, or elsewhere, I guess, have I been aware of the three fingers that are pointing back at myself when I come to talk on a subject like wisdom, right? It's like, be very careful, teacher, deciding to talk about wisdom. Um, a fool. Well, we'll get to that later— um, so I'm very, very acutely aware of, of that going on. And that's to say that wisdom is a gift from God, and it's meant to be pursued in a way that we're always growing in wisdom. We're always um, learning more, not like knowledge learning more, but learning more, growing in wisdom. At no point in time will you hear me stand up in front of you and say, I'm the wisest, or I've got this thing figured out. You know, I'm just a beginner trying to figure out, like you guys, um, what this thing of following Jesus is all about, and inviting people in into that. And so I wanted to start by telling you a story about two local teachers who were applying for the same uh, vice principal position at a local high school. And one of them had been teaching for a total of eight years, and the other one has been teaching for 20 years, and they're going for this vice principal job. And everyone expected the teacher with the greatest experience to get the job. But when the decision was made, it was the person with eight years teaching experience who was chosen. Well, the teacher with 20 years experience and who was overlooked for the job complained bitterly. And he said, I've got 20 years teaching to her eight he cried i'm vastly more qualified but the school board reply went like this they told him yes sir you do have 20 years teaching to her eight but where she has eight years experience you have one year years experience repeated 20 times so we're always growing in wisdom we're always growing in wisdom And simply experiencing the passage of time growing older doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting wiser. Why is that? Why is it that some 70-year-olds that you know act like middle schoolers? And why some middle schoolers act like they're wise beyond their years? Why is that? Well, it's because wisdom doesn't happen with the passage of time. Wisdom happens and is found squarely in the person of Jesus. Jesus is wisdom personified. When the scriptures say that Jesus came down to earth, it said the, f- the scriptures say that the fullness of God, the wisdom of God, in all the wisdom that God is, rested in the person of Jesus. So the source of all wisdom is found. Not through the passage of time, not through some um, Facebook religious guru, not through um, self-help books, but found squarely in the person of Jesus. And that's what we're going to get at. That's the main deal today, is wisdom found in a person. Wisdom found in a person. So when we read Ephesians together, we read this verses 15 through 20 in chapter 5. Be careful, be very careful then, how you live. Paul says, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most out of every opportunity because of the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So good. So first, what I recognize in this passage is living unwisely. What does that mean? That Paul says, do not live unwisely do not live as unwise, but as wise. How can we live unwisely? How can we live unwisely? There's a very sort of practical nugget in there. Paul says, well, if you decide to get drunk on wine, it's debauchery. It's going to lead to really bad things in your life. That would not be the wisest thing to do. But apart from like really practical things of like staying away from sin and stuff, what does it mean to live unwisely? Well, in the Psalms, we're told that the opposite of a wise person is referred to as a fool. A fool. And as followers of Jesus, we need to be really careful at how we define Or who we define to be a fool and who is not. More on that in a second. Psalms 14.1, I wanted to read it to you in the message version. It's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. And he defines, David here in Psalm 14, defines who the fool is. In the NIV, he says that a fool is someone who says there is no God. But listen to this. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it. This is Psalm 14, 1 through 3 in the message. Billows and bloated, they gas. God is gone. Their words are poison gas fouling the air. They poison rivers and skies. Thistles are their cash crop. God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, even God-expected, just one God-ready woman. He comes up empty, a string of zeros, useless, unshepherded sheep, taking turns pretending to be shepherd. The ninety and nine follow their fellow. A fool is someone who says in their heart that there is no God. There is no God. I'm... Or in our culture, in our society, in our day and age, a fool would be someone who would say, I'm on the throne of my life. You know this one. No one tells me what to do. I'm not under authority. I'm on the throne of my life. And so we hear Paul saying to us, do not live unwisely, or asking or begging of us the question, Who or what is on the throne of your life? Because it's all about worship. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. Or I am my own God. In America, this is far, this is this is what it is. In America, people are their own God. Atheists manifest in America as demigods. Who who are you to control my sexuality? Who are you to say that um, if I sleep around, I will get an STD? See, the fool believes in their heart that there is no pattern. There is no order to how the world is run. But we must be very careful to define, as followers of Jesus, to define who the fool is and who the fool isn't. What I mean is that it would be one of the most arrogant things for you or for me to say, gosh, that person is sleeping around, they are rude, they're arrogant. I don't see the activity of God anywhere in their lives. That person is a fool. Because that's, very, that's a very slippery slope that you're walking on when you start to define who the fool is and who the fool is not. No, our job is not to call out foolish people, is it? Our job as followers of Jesus is to look, rather, for the as a scientist or as an explorer, or as someone who's uh, committed to curiosity, to figuring out where. Okay, I realize that this person is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. I realize they're not living the most holy or religious life. Who really get? Okay. Where is the activity of God? Because if God is not a because God isn't a monitor, God is a father. God is a father. He's not a monitor. He's not out to shame us. He's not out to get us. He's out to love us. He's not out to rub it in. He's out to rub it out. And so as followers of Jesus, we're not committing ourselves to looking for others' faults, and fault finding and shaming. Oh, I've got a camera on my phone. I'm gonna shame you. That's what this is all about, isn't it? Where can I find someone to shame, to make myself look better, to make myself appear better than you? That's what that's all about. It's in its infancy now. Think about it in 20 years. No. The job of the Christian, the job of the follower of Jesus is to come alongside of into in this Um, in this heart attitude of uh, exploration like Dave and Sharon said dusting for the fingerprints of God I know this person is sleeping around with their boyfriend or girlfriend but where is God in this? where is God in their life? because if God is Father then he's not absent from any, any activity of any human being on the face of the planet all the time Bank on it. God is is not sleeping. God is not absent from people's lives. That person that you judged last week, that person that I criticized last week, God loves that person. God is at work in that person's heart. And every single person, every single human being on the planet, God is always at work. Always. There's never a moment when God is not at work at everyone's lives. Living unwisely. Who or what is on the throne of your life? Next, wisdom is a person. And I wanted you to turn with me to Proverbs 8. It's about halfway through. In Proverbs... Wisdom is so so important to who God is that God has given us a whole book dedicated to the subject of wisdom. He's even split it up for us, 21st century Americans, so that each day of the month has one chapter dedicated to the subject of wisdom. And I want us to turn to Proverbs 8. And in Proverbs 8, Verses 22, we get there, through 31, we read this. Wisdom is a person. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity. From the beginning, before the world began, when there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills I was given birth, before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then he I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the world, uh, in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Wisdom is a person. I get this sense. There's this wonderful book. If you have a chance, you should read it. It's like one of my top three. It's amazing. It's written by this guy named Gene Edwards, and it's called The Divine Romance, and there's this scene of God flinging stars, and the angels watching, and the angels are like fired up, and they're like, oh my goodness, look at all of this stuff that's happening. Look at what, look at what he's doing. What's he doing now? And, and the son is watching as well. Jesus is part, is, is, um, is uh, engaging in the act of creation with the Father, and the Spirit is saying yes and amen, the person of the Holy Spirit, and they're all three and, and, this, and this divine dance are like creating the world. It's an amazing book called The Divine Romance. And that's the picture I get here. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is personified here in Proverbs 8. And a lot of times when we go to look at this book, we think, why in the world would only a third of it be dedicated to, to the life of Jesus. And look how much more there is if this whole thing is about Jesus. Well, God is so wise and so filled with wisdom that he left for us little bits and nuggets, chicken nuggets, gold nuggets, of Jesus in the Old Testament for us to discover, for us to peel back layers and say, oh, I see Jesus in that. Every time you read a passage in the Old Testament, your question should be, where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus in, in here? Where can I find Jesus? Because he's there. He's there. So when we read a verse like Proverbs eight twenty two through 31, it's not an exact fit. It doesn't fit exactly because there's these trouble verses for us where we read... Like, I was, I was created then. And Athanasius and those throughout church history, there's been this huge, crea- uh, this huge argument about, well, was Jesus created or is he fully God and fully man? And Proverbs 8 says that whoever this wisdom character is, that they were created. Well, it's not an exact fit for who Jesus is, but it's a pretty good impression of, like, who Jesus is. And so that's important for us to keep in mind when we think about wisdom as a person. Because so often in culture and in society, we view wisdom as this thing that sort of slips through our fingers and that's unobtainable. For the better part of society, it's like this vague idea or philosophical advice or something that you can't obtain. And for others, people have lived in the murkiness of life so long that they've designated or resigned themselves to hopelessness. It's always going to be this way. The best that I can do is just get through today. Not so in the scriptures. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is available. Wisdom is given generously God is not stingy with any of his gifts. He's not standing like a stingy father with his gifts behind his back and keeping us at arm's length saying this far and no further. God's a generous giver. And so he's saying, Come. In Proverbs, verse after verse, come. Anybody who wants wisdom can have it. Wisdom is a person, it's not an exact fit. But wisdom is a person. He's not, Jesus is not Proverbs 8 wisdom, but he's like Proverbs 8 wisdom. Wisdom is both happy and suffering. Look at Proverbs 8, uh, 30 and 31. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day. Rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Do you know that Jesus is the most happy person who's ever walked on the face of the planet? A lot of times we err on the side that Jesus is a suffering servant. He's a man of sorrows. So Jesus walked around all of his days. Woe is me! Jesus, the suffering servant, That is. Admit it. That's how you see Jesus. You think of Jesus this way. But Jesus, and why do I say that about you? Because I know that I believed it myself. But this is not who Jesus is. In fact, it was the religious who walked around like that in Jesus' day. It was the religious who were the sufferers, and everybody knew that they were the suffering. They, they, put blush on their cheeks so that people would know that they were fasting. So holy. So wise. So learned. What did they call Jesus? Jesus was the friend of who? Sinners hanging out with hookers and IRS men. Keeping the poorest company. Why why else would Jesus... Okay, Jesus was the dude who showed up at the party when everyone was already drunk and gave them more wine. Huh. And all of the religious people in the room are like, oh, what are you Four emails on Monday right there. Jesus gave them more wine. Why would you give people more wine when they're already drunk and you're fully God and fully man? It's because Jesus is the most happy person on the planet. And Jesus gets joy out of seeing you filled with his joy. Jesus said, I am joy, and I want my joy to be complete in you. The same kind of joy Jesus had, or Jesus was, in his life, and is, he wants you to have the same. He wants you to live the same. But so oftentimes we see him as the suffering servant only. And that's why church is one of the most boring places on earth and people who follow Jesus are super boring and why no one comes to church. Doubt me? It's the truth. Just ask anybody under the age of 24. Church is, church is the most boring place on the planet. Why? Because people don't know that they serve the most happy person who's ever walked on the face of the planet. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is mighty to save and he takes great delight in you, not in what you do, not how full your bank account is, not who your trophy wife is, not who, how flashy your kids are. He delights in you. And the Hebrew translation of that means that God is so fired up over you that he's actually doing backflips over you. He's like the, he's the great cosmic cheerleader of your life. That is, the, that is the Hebrew definition of that word taking great delight in you. Backflips. Oh, I love you, he says. He's that annoying friend that you see from a mile down the road and is running towards you, and you're saying, oh, God, not in public. And he's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. Stop running away. He's that one. That's who God is. He's the most happy person on the face of the planet. But he's also simultaneously the man of sorrows and the suffering servant. And why is he this? Because in all of God's great wisdom, he decides that he will stoop down and put on skin and bones and become like us. Now you tell me, one other place, one other, one, one religion One religion that that comes up with something like that. No other place. Submitting a God, submitting under men, it doesn't happen. Men serve gods. Gods don't come down. Gods don't put themselves on our level. But God is so wise and so filled with wisdom that he devises in his mind, in the mind of God, what is God thinking when he sends Jesus down to us to move into our neighborhood? What is God thinking in that? God God is saying, aha, I've got it. They're trying to get to me. They can't get to me. How can I get them to me? I want to get them to me. I want to be in relationship with men and women from all of uh, from the beginning of time to the end of time, I want to I wanna get them to me. How do I get them to me? I got it. I got it. Because he understands how our hearts tick. He understands how our minds work. So he says, I'm going to give them someone who thinks like them, feels like them, hurts like them, celebrates like them. And then he sends Jesus as a helpless baby boy in the middle of, of nowhere to become like us. How wise is that? Nowhere else will you find, nowhere else than squarely in the person of Jesus. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom personified. The fullness of God's wisdom in the person of Jesus. He's able to understand and empathize in every way. He's both happy and suffering at the same time simultaneously. Impossible, we say. Not for Jesus. He's both and. All the time. And he's not schizophrenic. Amazing. Amazing! Amazing. So, we said living unwisely, and we said that wisdom is a person. Well, what does it mean to live wisely then? What does it mean to live wisely? Not as unwise, but as wise. Well, living wisely, this phrase uh, in English has its origins in to see, to see, or to see in in understanding, to see the times. Not just to look, but to see. You know there's a difference between looking and seeing, yes? Mm-hmm. There's a difference between looking and seeing. Understanding the times, understanding, seeing. You know, how many times, Joe will tell you, how many times people have sat down at his counseling table and have t- have looked at him and said, you know, I just wish my spouse could see me. Yes. I just wish my boss could see me. He doesn't see me. I wish my children, they could just see. There's a difference between looking and seeing. And wisdom, living wisely means, um, Paul is saying that we are to live um, as the King James says, "circumspectly, accurately." Paul is saying that there is a purpose on your life. You have per- you're not just here by accident, and you're not just here sitting at Vineyard Cleveland on accident this Sunday. There's something for you here. Jesus has brought you here. Your life is not just a conglomeration of cells in some clump of flesh. You're, you have purpose. You have destiny written. The poema of God, the poem, the poetry of God written on your life to do good works. Um, before the foundations of the earth, God thought of you. You're not just here happenstance. You have a purpose to live out in your days. Even if you're four or you're 94, there are still things for you to do on this planet today. Before you check out, you're not here by accident, circumspectly, to live with purpose, to live deliberately, and we're told to make the most of every opportunity. Paul says, make the most of opportunity, and us Westerners, we hear that, and we think, busy, busy, busy. Well, we got we to gotta go to work more. We got to work harder, because we're Americans. We work hard. We, we work hard. Um, we, uh, we got we to gotta do all that we can do. Well, that couldn't be more uh, further from what's in the scripture of God and what he's saying through Paul. To make the most out of every opportunity. What does that mean? Well, we think of time very much differently than our Muslim neighbors do in the Middle East or our African brothers and sisters do in Africa. Time is different. We think of time way dif- drastically differently than everyone else on the planet. Differently, what I don't mean by differently is that we think better about time. We think differently about time. Yes? We th- most Americans think about time as something that is quantifiable, one that is linear, too, and it's something we can touch. For the better part of the world, they don't think about time like that. Others don't think about time like that. Paul is saying, when he's saying making the most of every opportunity, he's not saying work harder, win more people to Jesus, convert people. Religion does that. Paul is saying, I don't want you to carry religion. You've carried religion your whole life. Don't work harder. That's what you've been set free from. To make the most out of every opportunity, we have to understand what the word time means here. There are two words in the Greek for time that Paul uses one is chronos, and the other is kairos. Chronos would be like. Kronos would be like how much time until this sermon ends Kairos would be like is it time for this sermon to end wisdom says yes Eben says no do you see the difference between Kronos and Kairos And Paul is using kairos. Make the most of every opportunity. That there are moments, so it's not some cosmic um, tug of war uh, where time is in the middle and good and evil are pulling at it. Making the most out of every opportunity or redeeming the time See where I'm going? Time is not being fought over. Time is squarely in the camp of the enemy. And if you claim to follow Jesus, your life's mission is to redeem or purchase back time. Well, that's a tough assignment. How do you redeem time? You You are buying back in the blood of Jesus every opportunity because you belong to Jesus. So every opportunity that you walk into after you come into contact Is any of this settling? Every opportunity that you walk into— I used to hear, this is a big phrase in the vineyard for a long time, uh, divine appointments. Did you hear that one? Divine appointments is a false theology. There are no sacred and secular moments once you sign up to follow Jesus. Amen. And the people said amen because there, there is no secular space and sacred space. Jesus is into redeeming and purchasing back time through people. He says, where is the camp of the enemy advancing? And wherever that is, mine, mine, mine. Through how? Through some, it's going to happen through some like trumpet in the sky? No, it's through an outpouring of you, of your heart, your creativity, your hands. If God is going to show up in your neighborhood, He's going to do it through your head, your heart, your hands, and your stomach. We look for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and God is looking for an outpouring of you to buy back time, to purchase time. This is what it means to live wisely. Redeeming or buying back the time. Psalm 90. Verse 12. David says to God, Here's a wise heart. Listen to David. Teach us to number our days right, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. A wise heart knows that each day is a gift, and that their days are numbered. My days are numbered. No one's going to remember me in a hundred years. No one will remember you in a hundred years. Our days are numbered, and that should bring us freedom Teach us to number our days, David said, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Numbering our days leads to where we want to close this morning, which is that um, a wise person gives thanks. Wisdom gives thanks. When we number our days and we realize that we've got... (laughs) that we've got less on this side than we do b- behind us, it cultivates gratefulness in our hearts. Not in the quantity of days, but in the n- days that are lived with Jesus. There's a richness that's added as we continue to follow Jesus and pursue his heart. And you've heard me say before about my talk on entitlement. Wisdom cultivates gratitude. It helps cultivate the ground for wise living. Gratitude does. It sustains. It's the water that sustains wise living. And it's also the result of wise living. Have you ever gotten around a real wise person? One thing that you'll realize about really wise people is that they're the most grateful people on the planet. Wise people say thank you a lot. Thank you. Wise people know that setting, by saying thank you, you set out a huge no trespassing sign to entitlement in your heart. You say, no, not in this heart. Nothing is owed to me. I don't deserve anything. And if I really got what I deserved, if I really got what I deserved. Come on now. Because you know what you deserve. You know what I deserve apart from Jesus. And gratitude says, thank you. I'm not owed anything. I owe Jesus everything. I owe the person of Jesus everything. I owe him all of my time, all of my money. I owe him my kids. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Everything is a gift. If nothing is wasted, as Father Richard Rohr says, if nothing is wasted, everything is a gift. And that's why Jesus can be the most happy person and the suffering servant at the same time in your life. Because nothing is wasted. Jesus will take anything. Jesus will take your drug addiction and turn it into something beautiful. Jesus will take your, uh, the, the situation of physical abuse in your life that you experience at the hands of a relative and turn it into something beautiful. Jesus will take your alcoholism. Jesus will take your divorce. Jesus will take your kids and turn them into something beautiful. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is wisdom personified. And wise people have learned the discipline of saying thank you. Why don't you stand with me? Listen to Paul. Paul. I want to give some folks the opportunity to respond to Jesus. We had uh, several people in first service give their lives to Jesus for the first time. And I'm expecting that there are others, not through persuasive speaking, but simply the Holy Spirit moving in people's hearts and the Father saying, come back home, come back home. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks, Americans, look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Humans come up with computers. Humans come up with atomic bombs. Humans invented the holocaust. Human wisdom. But in the wisdom of God, the person of Jesus comes down and puts on flesh and goes to the cross with nails driven through his hands and spikes through his feet and a crown of thorns shoved upon his skull. A spear driven into his side, blood and water flowing He says to Thomas, you don't believe? Stick your finger in there. Stick your finger in there. And then he dies. With his last breath, he says, it's finished. What's finished? The wisdom of God goes down. The wisdom of God goes down like a seed. The seed of Jesus is planted below the ground. You're not coming back from that. If you're a first century Jew, once you're dead, you're dead. You're stone cold dead. Jesus is under the ground. For three days he's under the ground. Where's he going? He's going down to Hades to unlock cages and set captives free. He leads captives in his train. He says, we're going up. We're going up to the gates. And then the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, says, come on up. Just like Jesus did when he was alive to Lazarus, the Father speaks to Jesus' dead body. Fully man, fully man, fully God, speaks to his dead body and says, Get up! And Jesus raises up back to life after three days of being dead. And he doesn't just stop at earth, the Father says, Come on up further, come on up higher. Jesus says, How high? The Father says, Higher than any other name that's ever been mentioned on the face of the planet, higher than any other name that ever will be given breath to, higher than any other name in any other world is the name of Jesus, exalted and glorified over every other arrogant, humble name on the planet. And He sits down at the right hand of the Father and Uh, strikes a crushing blow to religion. He says, you think you can get here by striving? Aha! Sits down. The work is done. No more religion. Freedom in the person of Jesus sitting because the work is finished at the right hand of the Father. And he doesn't just stop there. He leans over to the Father and he says, I want more. I want sons and daughters back. Was that enough? And the Father says, it's finished Bring them home. Bring them home. Bring prodigals home. Let them know that it's happy time. It's celebration time. Because the camp of the enemy no longer holds any power. And because Jesus says, Oh, death, where is your sting? It's swallowed up in victory the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's been raised from the dead that we can be raised from the dead. Jesus isn't just some, an accessory on your life like a watch you pick up at Target. Jesus is your life. He becomes your life. He becomes the breath that you breathe. He doesn't want to be just you turning over a new leaf in life. He's not you making a new start. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is planting a whole new tree inside of your heart. He's giving you rebirth. If that's you and you want to come home to Jesus, you pray with me. Say, I want to come into relationship with you, God. God, I want to know you. I don't want church. I don't want religion. But I want you, God. I want you, Father. I want to be loved. I want to experience the love of a father. To feel in my guts that I'm loved. I confess to you, God, that I've made a mess of my life, and I need you, Jesus. I need to be saved. I'm not my own God. Or I've, I confess to you that I've been my own God, and I've fallen short. I can't be that. I need you. I need to be rescued. You say that to God. You say to God, I confess that what I've done has offended you, that I've sinned against you, and I confess that as sin, and I confess the sins done against me. And I thank you that you've nailed them to the cross and that you paid for those in full to redeem me and to redeem time. And if you prayed that with me, friend, you just picture something like a door in your heart and fling wide the door of your heart. And say, Come and live inside of me. Come and fill me with your presence. Come and raise me from the dead. If you prayed that with me, would you let me know? Did you raise your hand? You said, I prayed that with you this morning. That was me. Yeah? Praise God.